This is a crowd podcast. I'm Sam Warburton and this is Captains, the podcast that gives you leadership insight from the biggest names in sport. Today's guest won the European Cup as a player, captained his nation at a World Cup and won trophies in England and Scotland as a manager, Martin O'Neill. If you'd said to me at 22 years of age, the second part of my life, I'm going to have to speak to a group of people in a dressing room for a living, I would have died a death. The number of times that people have said he he didn't have a plan B. Sorry, no, you should have a plan A, and if plan A doesn't work, try and make it work. I didn't want to be everyone's friend. I wanted it to, to be my way. This is the way that we're going to do it. There's only going to be one voice in the dressing room that's really important, and that'll have to be me. Hi, everyone, and thanks again for listening to Captains. It's a bit of a different one today. Martin is in a unique position for a guest on the show. He was a captain as a player, leading Northern Ireland at the 1982 World Cup, and then he had to appoint captains when he was a manager. I've always been fascinated with how managers select their captains and what traits and characteristics they look for, so it was interesting to hear how he approached that. We spoke about what he learned from a couple of the biggest names in football. Brian Clough was his manager at Nottingham Forest when they won the European Cup, twice, and also Roy Keane, who's his assistant towards the end of his career. He's a funny guy and he loves his rugby too. I hope you enjoy the episode with Martin O'Neill. Martin, thanks so much for, for jumping onto the podcast and chatting to us. It's a pleasure, Sam. Thank you. Your book, which has come out, which is brilliant, Martin O'Neill, on days like these, my life in football. I, I found it quite a reflective exercise, and I was only reflecting on 10 years of my career when I did the yeah. autobiography. You've had half a century in the professional game. How did you find it actually reflecting and, and writing the book on such a vast career? It's a really interesting point, Sam. I came in as a professional player into Nottingham Forest from being a student, believe it or not, in, in, in Ireland, to become a professional player overnight. This was late 1971, but still less than six years away from when England won the World Cup in 1966. So um, mm. first couple of games, you're playing against George Best, Dennis Law, Bobby Charlton, and uh, people like that. And then suddenly you see the changes that have taken place over the 50 years, some terrific changes, like better football pitches for a start, bypass rule being done away with, that type of stuff. So all of those things, they're really good. And I thought, well, listen, it's, a, it's an opportunity maybe to just um, reflect in those times, see, see what you made of it. I started off by thinking or remembering two very, very big days in my time as a player that, that are like yesterday to me. And that's obviously first day as a player at, at Nottingham Forest and obviously the first day that Brian Clough uh, came in in 1975 and changed their lives forever, really. So over the, the 30 years that you managed from the 80s and all the way up till 2019, players and football has changed dramatically and you've been through all of that change. What would be the biggest differences that you see in, in football players and, and captains nowadays mm. compared to maybe 30 years ago? Okay, well, I, I feel, and I'm generalising here, but I didn't feel that the players could accept this the sort of criticism that might have been meted out when I first came into the game. Mm. I think that really with the uh, with Sir Alex Ferguson retiring, perhaps maybe the last of the hairdryer treatment was, was, was disappearing and then you had to deal with players in a, in a different manner. When I started out in the game, first of all, players had no power whatsoever. 
and that was wrong. They needed some power. Nowadays, the players have too much power. And I think there's a happy medium somewhere along the way. So players, players and agents have the power. And the manager would be your first port of call as a player. You never bypassed a manager in my day and went to a chairman. Nowadays that happens, you know, players who might be find themselves in the team just go to their agents, the agents go and, and, and go straight to the chairman, bypassing, bypassing the managers. The manager's role in many aspects has changed as well too. There are other exceptions, obviously, Klopp and, uh, and Guardiola, who have proved themselves year in, year out, and so that they would have a strong influence in the, in the, um, at what has been said at club level. But what I am saying is that some managers now are actually confined to doing a job as a coach, and therefore that overall uh, running of a football club in the manner in which Sir Alex Ferguson would have done which in the manner of which I attempted to do myself during those times, I think all of that there has changed. So what has changed from, from captains? I, I'm not so sure that an awful lot has changed. You're still going to get different, different personalities uh, really from this. Remarkably, I actually feel that players, even today, still need managing. They still need a voice in that dressing room that's the strongest voice in the dressing room almost talking them through what to do, which is a bit of a shame, but overall they still need that voice that's the main one in the dressing room. We'll definitely come on to this. Could you come across as such a, a lovely, nice person? I'm sure you are. I'm no, not, not saying you're not. not. When you're yeah. doing your punditry and your yeah. management. What were you like growing up? Did you always think you were going to have a career in, a long, successful career in playing and management. What were you like as a leader growing up? Were you quiet? Were you shy? Were you quite outspoken? No, absolutely. Very shy. Shy, naturally, had these dreams of wanting to become a professional footballer, wanting to win all the medals that are going. But really, you know, there's a reality check sets in pretty quickly. I I felt as if I had to come out of myself somewhere along the way. A a reasonable sense of humour, but that in itself is just really not enough. But as I went into my 20s, I started to develop a little bit as a a person more than anything else. And I became a a little less shy. The truth is this, if you'd said to me at 22 years of age, the second part of my life, I'm going to have to speak to a group of people in a dressing room for a living, I would have died a death. I would have died an absolute (laughs) death. Seriously, you said to me that this is it. I have to command a room in there and speak to people. So it was something that I started to learn a little bit. And and I'll give you an example. I I started off in management in, in Grantham, would you believe? Only famous for Margaret Thatcher being born there. And we were in a Beezer Home Midland division, about 15 leagues below the proper league. So this is where I started. I used to bring some players, like ex-players, like Kenny Burns and players like this here, come down for 35 quid to play for a game. And Kenny Burns had finished his career. He was, um, he was running a pub in Utoxeter and he came down to Grantham. I have to rollick Kenny Burns at halftime for being hopeless in the first half, for Grantham versus Starbridge. Can you believe it? <laughs> Seriously, I'm talking about a player who's one player of the year. I'm actually giving Kenny Burns stick to a group of boys who are painters and decorators from Nottingham in the dressing room. And Kenny Burns listening to what I'm saying, I think he's going to kill me here. He's actually going to, he's going to get up and he's going to hit me, you know. But he took the criticism on board. He scored two set pieces just after half time as well too. So I felt as if I'd won. But you talked about did it something you had to, to work at. 
I think you do, whether it's subconsciously or not, it's something that you do have to work on. And by the time that I I'd got to Celtic, you know, I'm 46 or 47 years of age, but for the last 10 years, my whole career depends on my team talks as much as anything else. So yes, it was something I probably did have to, to, to work on, but I, unlike you, I, I didn't become a captain of a team until maybe about 27, 28 years of age. I, I don't think I would have been capable of captaining a Nottingham Forest side at 24 years of age. Let me put it this way. So that's the, that's the only praise you're going to get from me today. <laughs> so we, we get all of our guests to, the, to define the role of the captain in their sport. And you're in the unique position of being an ex-football captain and obviously appointing captains as a manager as well in your, in your later career. So... Can you sum up to us, in your ideal world, what makes a good captain and what do you look for in a captain? Right. First of all, if the manager makes you captain, then the first thing you think about, I don't know how you felt about this, was responsibility. First of all, to the manager who's picking you, he must feel that you have got some sort of influence over the team. I think really, and it is really getting respect from the players. I think that's very important, mm. Sam, really important to have that, that, that respect. And again, I wouldn't mind throwing it open to you, how you felt really as a captain, as a very, very I'll, I'll go to the Lions where you were very, very young and you had experienced players, uh, your teammate like Alan Wynne-Jones playing, maybe even Paul O'Connell, players, people like that. I, I just think there must have been a slight, a slight degree, not fear is, is not the right word, oh, but yeah. feeling that well, I wonder what they're going to think about me as the captain of the side. I'm going to actually be t- telling them to do things. But also I think, <laughs> I think the one thing about the captain of a football team and the captain of a rugby side, I think rather than a cricket team, you are not going to ask a player to do something that you are not going to do yourself. You know, I think that's important. Absolutely. Is that right? Is that Would that be something that you felt yourself, particularly early on? Yeah, know? the responsibility, big responsibility, but I was comfortable with that. And you said respect. That was the one that I struggled with mm-hmm. most because I didn't know if I was going to have the respect of, like you've mentioned, your Paul O'Connells and Brian O'Driscolls, you know, fellow countrymen yes. who've been around for a decade longer than me, who've mm-hmm. been on multiple tours before me. And until those guys came up to me and they fully supported me and I realised I did have their Mm. respect. I I found it very uncomfortable until that moment, which is why when I was older and if somebody was a younger captain who was playing with myself, I realised how powerful that was to me and I'd go up to them and just fill them with as much confidence as they could, Mm -hmm. like you are our guy and we're behind you because I think it's a daunting place for a young guy to lead people 10 years your senior in in alpha sports, Mm -hmm. which they are. They very get a lot of alpha males in those sports who are quite domineering, but as soon as they've got your back, it's it's really comfortable. Mm -hmm. So as a youngster, while we're on that subject, you go and you mentioned going into Nottingham Forest. Fast forward four years... 1975 and this man and team still goes down in football folklore brian clough comes in do you remember the first time you set eyes on him and what you thought absolutely yeah it's like yesterday to me it was a cold january morning remember the background to this sam was that he obviously a charismatic figure big name in the game had won the league at derby county in 1971-72 along with his uh, his assistant manager peter taylor and he had had this 44-day sojourn at, at, at Leeds United, uh, which was never going to work for him because he kept telling the Leeds United players, who at that stage were the, definitely the best team in the country, and kept telling them that they should throw their medals in the bin because they uh, didn't deserve them, they had cheated. 
They had all these things. So you can imagine stepping into that dressing room with Johnny Giles, Billy Bremner, telling them that they've cheated all their time. It's not going to work. <laughs> it's not going to work. I don't care whether you're Brian Clough or not. And so after a couple of months, here he is arriving at, at us second division club. Suddenly he just breezes in that morning. And there was only about two players in the dressing room that he would have recognised. Honestly, it's a, you know, the rest of us were kind of two-bit players, you know, going nowhere. Uh, the, well, those were his words. And, um, <laughs> and he, but he, his conversation was not long. And here he was and he just said, listen, we're going down to Bisham Abbey for four days. We're going to play Tottenham Hotspur, obviously, on Wednesday night. We'll stay down in Bisham Abbey. We've got Fulham on the Saturday in the league game. And that, let's see how we do. So it was really that. His conversations during those days down there were short, sharp. All the things that I think that you probably expected from him, but really mesmeric, really, Sam, mesmeric. He was really quick-witted, very, very quick-witted, um, the manager, smart guy. I mean, I know, I know he always claims himself that he wasn't properly educated, but he's, he was bright. So Tony Woodcock came in. Tony hadn't scored for a, few, for a few games, but Tony was a very, very good player. Brian, for the most part, liked players to be clean-shaven. Tony arrived in with a bit of a stubble on, a, on his chin and Clough said to him, hey, Woodcock, uh, what, what's that? And he said, what's what? He said, that on your chin, he said. <laughs> so Tony looks at the chin, oh, he said, just a, a bit of stubble. He said, I know that. He said, but what's it there for? Uh, Tony said, well, I just want to be different. And he said, well, be different, score a bloody hat trick, you know. And uh, <laughs> it was just that he had no idea what Tony was going to say, but so, so quick. That was Clough. He was so sharp. Was there any moments where Brian Clough said or did anything that you think helped you in your career? Yeah, well, the, the moments of praise that you look for, ju just outstanding moments. Now, uh, generally speaking, I, I, was, I felt as if I was trying to prove him wrong rather than prove him right. And this became a, a daily occurrence, you know. So sometimes, you know, you can get a wee bit, you can get a bit fed up with it if you think to yourself, well, oh, wait a minute, I'm not going in again on a Wednesday here to prove him wrong again. I would just like to have that <laughs> seal of approval that he sometimes gave, like that little, uh, that little sign to other players. But really, when he did give it to you, my word, do you not feel great about it? Absolutely terrific. So we've got to talk about the success that you had as a player at Forest. You won the league in 1978, just a year after getting promoted, which is a literally incredible story. Reflecting now, and it's a big question and there's no short answer, but how, how did that happen? What was the key to the success and that rise of Nottingham Forest? Well, when Brian Clough arrived at the football club, we won our first two games. We beat Tottenham, beat Tottenham, you'll be sorry to hear, and knocked them out of the cup <laughs> and then and beat Fulham. And do you know this, Sam, that we did not win another game for about 16 matches? But Brian... Oh, wow. See, nowadays they'd be gone, Absolutely. But Brian Clough was unsackable at the time, and there's no way that Nottingham Forest were going to sack Brian Clough. Anyway, fast forward 16, 18 months, Peter Taylor arrives at the football club. Now, Taylor was absolutely brilliant for Brian Clough. Brilliant. He was very, very good at, at spotting players as well. And suddenly the two of them together, you felt there was a, a rejuvenation about Brian Clough. You know, I'm not saying he was a, a shrinking violet, far from it. But Taylor brought the best out of him. And suddenly this man became rejuvenated. And between the two of them, you knew that the club was on the move. As it turns out, we scramble promotion. We go to Goodison Park the opening day. We cannot get a breath, Sam. Cannot get a breath. 
we force a corner after about 25 minutes. I think it's the first time we were out of our own penalty box and we score the goal from the corner kick. And I know it's crazy to say this, but from that moment onwards, never looked back. When Clough got on the roll, and in terms of his team talks, in terms of his whole personality, in terms of his domination of the football club, really all of those things combined, Sam, I think, you know, to get us that success. So then 1979, so it's not long. Mm-hmm. Um, you, like you say, you get all these foundations in place. And then you win the European Cup against Malmo, but you, you missed the final. Mm-hmm. And I could really resonate with what you were saying in the book. On the Lions Tour in 2013, yeah. I played the first two games, missed the third game, which we won, yes. and we won the series. Uh-huh. And it sounds really selfish. Mm-hmm. Um, I obviously enjoyed that we won, obviously, and it was great, but I didn't play. Yeah. Um, and it's really nice when I heard someone like yourself saying the same thing. Unless you've played and, mm. and put in all that effort, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel the same. And you seem like you found that quite hard to deal with. Was, was that the case, not, not featuring in that final in 1979? How did you feel? Absolutely. I, th- I think you've, you've got to be in the field of play. Yeah. I sometimes wonder now in the current game... And, and, it's, and it's great to see camaraderie. It's great sometimes as a manager if you're looking to see the subs all, all really with you. But I sometimes wonder whether they really are because I know how I felt as a player, but I, I, I did not feel any part of it at all. Not getting on the field of play. <clears throat> I look, I see footage now of myself with this face like a... Uh, oh, it's, it's it's so, so cross. <laughs> it's as if we had lost the final because I'm not going to play in another European Cup final. Nottingham Forest are not going to play in a provincial side, as it turns out they do. Everything is worthless. It really is. You're not in the field of play. You're not participating. I'm pleased that you say that that's how you felt about it because that, that was me. If I, and it's a, maybe it's a rather selfish feeling. <clears throat> maybe it is. But at the end, if you're not in that field of play... When that final whistle goes, you're definitely not part of it. So incredibly then, you back it. You obviously win that game against Malmo. You back it up the year after to win it two years in a row against Hamburg. How sweet did that feel then, knowing that you were on the field and you played a full part in that final? Oh, as, at day and night, absolutely. You know, at halftime in the game against Hamburg, which included about six or seven German internationals and Kevin Keegan, we get, uh, we get in at half time in the game, we're leading 1-0 and we're under a lot of pressure in the last 10 or 15 minutes of the first, of the first half. So Clough comes in to try and make some adjustments and he was, trying to, he, was, he was thinking something about changing someone's position and uh, I, I kind of volunteered for, to, to go into this position which might have been a bit unnatural and i never forget, Sam, he said to me, he said, no, you stay there, son, because you're doing brilliantly. And I thought, listen, I've waited years and years for this praise. <laughs> and now it's coming in this game. He said, you're doing brilliantly. My word, the surge of energy that went through me. I'm ready for the second half. <laughs> Probably still played not, uh, not, not so well. But anyway, but, um, so that, that praise that you're, 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 you're searching for, that you maybe have had three times in the five years that he's been there at the football club, Suddenly it gives you, uh, it rejuvenates you, you're in to go. And honestly, it was a fantastic feeling. So winning to, when that final whistle goes, you're on the field of play and you've won the medal that, that George Best, De Stefano, Puskas, all those players have won. And the great side of 1967 with all the, um, the um, Lisbon Lions from Celtic, that was just the most amazing thing. You know, to win a European Cup is phenomenal.
You're listening to Captains with me, Sam Warburton, and my guest, Martin O'Neill. So I guess the, the one question I always ask a guest, what would be on Martin O'Neill's captaincy or leadership compass? Uh, to be honest, you can look at it from a captaincy perspective or a managerial perspective. All right, okay. I genuinely think, Sam, that motivation is so, so strong, particularly in the dressing room. You know, when you're talking, and I actually see it when I, I look at the um, documentaries of the of the Lions tours and things that you see here. I love it because that is it. I felt the power of the team talk. I felt as if that, that, that was it, that, you know, the dressing room was my domain. And the motivational side, particularly just before going out onto the field, was really important. And I'm going to be cynical here. The number of times that, that people have said he, he didn't have a plan B, Sorry, no. You should have a plan A, and if plan A doesn't work, try and make it work. Try and make it work if that's the case. You know, of course you make changes, you adjust. If that means that that, uh, your adjustments that you're making during the course of the game is plan B, well, let it be plan B. Honestly, it makes me smile when I hear the pundits say his tactics didn't work. Well, perhaps maybe they didn't work because the other tactics were better from the opposition. Do you know what I'm saying? So I'm being a bit cynical here. And one aspect I'm probably trying to cover, I I started off in your your four points, your your compass points, and I was trying to get, if, if I was trying to go east, south, west and north quickly. I was trying to get to north quickly before you noticed that I didn't actually say anything at all. So, um, <laughs> but um, but I, I think overall, your, your personality is so, so mm. important, really important that you, whatever you are, then be that. So Northern Ireland, and you captained Northern Ireland at the World Cup in 1982. How, how did you find out about being captain? Was it something you were expecting? Was it something that you wanted? Yeah, uh, was well, something that I wanted absolutely, but not. No, I wasn't sure about it because I was uh, a Catholic, and Billy Bingham, who was who had managed Northern Ireland before, he meets up with me at, uh, at some hotel and tells me that he wants me to be the captain of the team. I mean, the, the the troubles were still very very severe in Northern Ireland at the time. A lot of sectarianism, a lot of concerns, and Billy Bingham makes me the Catholic, the first Catholic captain of the side. Now, in all honesty, he could have easier decisions. You know, he could have made other, other players captain. I think he felt because of my experience in Europe, I think he thought I was a reasonably decent communicator. And I think he felt that I could motivate the team, which was actually very encouraging for me. But he also said, listen, I'll get a little bit of flack for this here from, from some quarters in Northern Ireland. But if we start to win football matches, That'll dissipate, you know, might not uh, disappear completely, but it'll certainly dissipate, and then we'll take it from there. And so, Sam, we got lucky because we started to win some some football matches, and therefore the sort of criticism of me being the first Irish Catholic to captain the team kind of disappeared. Was that quite a lot of pressure when that was announced then, when that happened? Yeah, I would love to turn around and tell you that it was hitting every single newspaper in Europe. It wasn't, you know. <laughs> it was uh, it was a, a a wee bit more parochial in in that sense. But still, it, it it was still a big thing, and it was made a big thing in Northern Ireland at the time for quite a number of weeks. So, I mean, this it's only been brief, you know, with all the things that you've done as a player. But already you can see you've been through a lot as a player, as a captain, being under really influential managers and other captains. At what point in your playing career did you start turning your attention to the thought that you could become a manager? Well, I never really thought about it at all. Never really thought. Until, fast forward a couple of years, I run into Peter Taylor, 
by accident in Nottingham. Peter had retired from the game at the time and I didn't really want to see him because Peter and I never really got on that well. He actually paid me a bit of a compliment in an, an uncomplimentary way. He said, uh, you disappoint me, son, you disappoint me. Still calling me son after this time. And I said, well, why is that? He said, I thought you would have gone into management. He said that uh, I thought you were uh, really made for it, which is something he'd never, ever said to me at all. And he said, well, you had the two best teachers in the world here. He said, you had, you had myself and, and, and Brian, meaning Brian Clough. And at that time that they had fallen out with each other. And I was nearly going to say to him, well, if you're, you know, if you two are that good, why don't you make up, uh, be friends again? <laughs> but I didn't. But I have to say, Sam, what he did do is he started to make me think about it. And almost, almost from the moment that I got home back to the house again, I really did start to think about it. So then I started to apply for jobs. Even though I wasn't getting, I didn't get replies for particular jobs like, you know, the, uh, like the Stockports and the, uh, and the Mansfields and the, and the Chesterfields and things that you see here. It didn't dissuade me. So I still kept, I still kept writing for jobs and eventually something happened. And I obviously don't know this. I haven't been in a head coach role, but I always wonder, I see some coaches who come in and they almost want to be everyone's best friend and they're almost too friendly. And then you get some coaches who come in as well who are very like dictatorship, my way or the highway. Where did you want to pitch yourself along that continuum? What did you think worked best? I didn't want to be everyone's friend. I really genuinely didn't. I wanted it to, to be my way. This is the way that we're going to do it. I didn't, hopefully I didn't want to be dictatorial, but in many aspects, there's, going to, there's only going to be one voice in the dressing room that's really important. And that'll have to be me because if, if I can't be that, then, then I won't be very much. And I, I probably learned things like that from Brian Clough, but I think I also learned from other managers as well, people with different personalities. But I think that my particular job was to impose my personality over, over the dressing room, really. And, and that, that, that was it. You had a vast managerial career. You mentioned some of the teams, but Wickham, Norwich, Leicester, Celtic, Aston Villa, Sunderland, mm. Republic of Ireland, Forest. You know, really comprehensive CV. Give us some examples of, of the best captains that you manage at some of those clubs. Who comes to mind? OK, right. Well, I had, when I went to Wickham Wonders, I had an incredible captain there, a big fella called Glyn Creaser. Uh, Glyn was about six foot four, but he... Good start. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he was incredibly influential. His whole personality dominated the players. The players looked up to him messages that were going out from myself to the players via him never were misunderstood and that was early in my managerial career so I realized the importance of a captain particularly a captain that bought into you what into your kind of way of running the things I go to Leicester City a big player called Steve Walsh interesting character Sam really interesting one of those big lads who would go through the brick wall for you on a, on a Saturday but on Friday used to come in, used to come in on a Friday and say, he would do his training, he would be absolutely fine, he would finish the training, then come in to you and say, oh, I'm in bits, I don't know whether I'm going to make it for tomorrow. And I would say, excuse me, Steve, you just finished training there now. <laughs> oh, I'm in really in bits. But it was that, you know, it was that sort of self-defence mechanism in case he played badly in the games that he would, oh, you know, I told you on Friday I was really ill. So he was like a bit of a hypochondriac, to tell you the truth, but massively important for me in, uh, when he was playing. 
Oh, by the way, when, when Steve wasn't captain at the time, I then had another fellow called Matty Elliott, who was just superb, absolutely superb. Superb as a captain, but superb player as well too, and the centre half. And I like to have them from, from that position. But then when I went to Celtic, I had a captain called Paul Lambert. Paul had done very, very well, had uh, won a European Cup medal with Dortmund, had been uh, very successful, good influence in the dressing room, a strong, and he had to be strong because there were a lot of strong players there, like Larson, Sutton, Anita Lennon, players like this here. So he had a bit of control over, over, the, over the dressing room, which was always very positive in many aspects. And interesting, and the point I wanted to make to you, one player that I very seldom made captain, but absolutely assumed the captain's role when we went onto the field of play, which was Neil Lennon, you know? And sometimes I, I just didn't make him captain just to annoy him more than anything else. <laughs> but uh, but he was he was a major captain on the field of play without the armband. So when you go into these clubs, they've obviously got um, cultures that are already set up. They've got a pre-existing captain. Did you go in and stick with the current captain then figure out who you wanted or did you go in and make change straight away? No, I didn't. I would have stayed with what was there. The last thing I wanted to do was um, make big changes just for the sake of it. You might find that you were doing something just to make a, a statement and find out that the person that you're deposing as captain probably was the best choice. Interesting, when I went to Aston Villa, the captain of the side was um, Gareth Barry that I'm talking about. He was a very f- fine footballer. And he was a very quiet captain. So he led by example rather than by words. With, with all these captains that you've had, is there a common denominator that they all possess? I would be hoping that it would be a real desire to win. Whether you helped instill that into them, whether they had it to begin with, or whether they, you know, eventually, through a little bit of experience, that, that that's something that uh, they wanted to do. Now, not every, not every captain has this drive and determination to win at all costs. You know, I, I mean, for instance, you know, if you, if you are thinking about someone like Roy Keane, who was at uh, Manchester United, those players were terrific footballers, but he was the driving force, you know, behind that team. Not just one year, Sam, but, but year after year after year. And you can see that when I worked with him, you could tell that that, you know, that that, that was just something that came from within. He didn't have to be taught that at all. And I think that uh, if, if I could draw some sort of contrast with some of the captains that I had, I felt as if that sometimes they needed drawn out of themselves a little bit. They had it within them. They just needed me maybe to, to bring it out of them. So you mentioned Roy Keane, and he's obviously got a, a massive personality and persona that we see on the, on the television. And I do love his win-at-all-cost mentality as well. And mm-hmm. I heard something he said that he said he didn't play football to make friends, he played football to win. And you worked with him as your assistant when you managed Ireland. What was he actually like to work with? Was he like a really strong, domineering character? Or was he allowing you to be that manager role and, and at the top of that tree? Definitely the latter. I think that he occasionally would suppress his influences, I think, a little bit. Now, remember, Sam, first of all, he'd been a manager himself. That was important. So yeah. you you're, you're still think like a manager. And then when you're asked to do a subsidiary role, or for, for instance, like, a, like an assistant manager, then you have to look at it from a, from a different viewpoint. You might still have your, you, you'll have your say in, in private. You'll, you'll have your own team, the team that you might want to pick. 
But the minute that the manager, myself, said, listen, Roy, I think we'll go with this instead, you would know that he would be right behind you for a start. So in terms of being uh, in private conversation, very funny, very witty, very self-effacing, obviously exceptionally strong-minded, but I think when I'm the manager of the team, I think he would, there was an, an element of suppression of his thing he felt for probably for the good of the team. He was such an influential captain for United. What do you think made him so special? He had just that natural driving force about him. That And the one thing that I think I like about captains um, is this here, that even if they're not playing well themselves, and occasionally uh, uh, Roy Keane, like yourself, maybe not playing so well, but this idea that you can still influence your players around you mm. and that they respect you and that no player is going to come up and say, excuse me, Sam, you know, you've just missed three tackles there. You know, what are you saying? It's the idea that they have this great respect for you that is essential in a captain, really essential and particularly for ones who have got that driving force about them. If you were a manager and Roy Keane was your captain, how would you have liked that relationship to go and how would you have managed Roy Keane? Do you know what? I actually think, I genuinely think that that would have been quite easy, really easy, because Roy Keane is the epitome of all the things that you want. Mm. You're the manager of the team. This is exactly what you want. For your, for your captain or for a player to have all of these attributes. If you think about Roy Keane, he had bits of everything. He might not have been the best passer in the world. He might not have been the best, whatever it may be, the best goal scorer, whatever you call But he had bits of everything. But it was his driving force, Sam, that really was the, was the issue. The driving force. It, listen, if he was going mental at someone all the time, as he did do during the course of it, I might have to say to him at half time, uh, listen, I'm, I'm sure perhaps maybe... Uh, maybe Sir Alex Ferguson, maybe had to say, Roy, just calm a little bit, just calm a little bit. And then a Roy, he would probably lose the, the, the head then and saying, I can't be calm, I can't be calm, you know, and I have to drive it on. And then you start to think to yourself, well, actually, you're probably right. Okay, don't be calm at all, stay with it. So obviously, during the course of the time, I'm quite sure that there'll be a number of arguments, but overall, Roy Keane, and Sir Alex Ferguson had a fantastic relationship for a long, long time. And I think like everything else, I think that perhaps maybe that that when Roy became an older player, injuries catching up with you and your influence is starting to wane a little bit, perhaps maybe that's when the relationship started to wane. But you, if you've got a driving force like Roy Keane as your captain, you've got a good chance. You've got a good chance of winning. A bit like yourself, believe it or not. I would have... Oh, um, thanks. <laughs> no, absolutely, honestly, because I listen... I do like my rugby. I do... do you, I was going to rugby. Me. I didn't know, yeah. I do. I love rugby league. I absolutely love it. They put soccer players to shame. They put me to shame because I see them there. <laughs> oh, no, going, not at all. Going through brick walls. But would I have had the bravery of you? No, no, I'm afraid not. No. Life as a manager from the outside, it looks brutal, you know, especially when you're in the Premier League. But like any career in professional sport, there's obviously a lot of lows and a lot of games you lose. And I imagine, I can imagine as a manager, I think this when teams lose, I can imagine the board coming in or the chairman or CEO and you've got to explain to him what's happened in two minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, how hard is it to be a football manager? That cycle going up and down every week emotionally, 
And you've done it for so long, you obviously managed it very well. How did you cope with, with all that pressure, whether it's externally and internally as a football manager? I, I, I don't, th- yeah, it's a very good point. I don't think that, it, I don't think it ever leaves you. I would love to have been a manager that actually could leave the result at the door and then have an enjoyable weekend. I'm sorry, I took it home with me all the time, <laughs> all the time. Uh, it really does affect you, you know, if you can't get the results and you feel as if that you've... I mean, you analyse everything. I think you seem to analyse things more when you've lost games than you ever done when you've won, whereas this thing just leaves you drained over the over the weekend. I think that you, you've, you've mentioned the lows, Sam, and and there are loads of them, really loads of them. In fact, funnily enough, when I, when I was actually writing the book, my daughters uh, had a little look at it, my two daughters who never saw me play but uh, have grown up as uh, me as a manager, and I've said, Dad, did you actually ever win a game when you're writing your book? Did you? You just seem to talk. <laughs> you, you just seem to talk about God, loss. You do though. You do. You remember the bad after, stuff. Absolutely, yeah. loss after loss after loss. The game is still about players, and if you're lucky enough to be a, a captain of a really great side, well, there, there there can be nothing better, really, Sam. Really, you know. So, I mean, and and from your own viewpoint. That must be the biggest accolade to captain to captain a winning lion side. It's particularly down uh, in a, in Australia or you know on New Zealand where where you actually got the draw. But but like you say, if I reflect on those things, I talk about not being involved and the injury and, yeah, know, and the you're... negative things. Yeah. Not, I don't talk about the good oh, things. I talk I, about the things I didn't do. You, you know, it's I, terrible. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to invite you out for a cup of tea because the two of us will will, will be. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll be in desperation by the time the coffee comes round. Absolutely, you're a man. <laughs> you're a, you're a man after my own heart. Honestly, I feel as if that that's it. It's uh, it's it's been nothing but disaster along the way. You, you talked about that uh, conversation you had with Peter Taylor when you were twenty nine thirty mm-hmm. about management. Mm-hmm. If you were sort of in that Peter Taylor role now, and somebody who you've managed said to you, "I, w- I want to be a football manager," Martin. What, what advice would you give me? What what would you give them? Right, really good point. Well, first of all, I, I wouldn't dissuade him from being one. If that's what you want to do, that would be great. I feel that um, in today's management, managing upwards is still very, very... It's become more important than ever before, believe it or not. Something that I didn't really pay a great deal of attention to. It's not that I didn't like my chairman, but nowadays I feel as if that if I was giving a manager advice, well, I think that you must bring your personality to it. Whatever that personality is, whether you are by nature dour, you know, if you are something like this here, well, even bring that to the table, even bring that, but be somebody. You must have some sort of strength within you in that dressing room. It's interesting. It must have been maybe uh, six months ago, maybe, maybe a little bit longer when uh, Guardiola, one of the great managers in the game, was asked what, what his job was really. And while he has got these fantastic displays, uh, you know he can um, he can have players doing wonder wondrous things, and he has little tactics and little plans and things like this here. Essentially, he's man managing, he's man managing. Yeah. And if you have that as a natural thing, then that's that's terrific. If it isn't natural to you, you're going to have to learn it. You really have to to learn man management, when to give someone a pat on the back and when not to to know your players. I used to think when I started out, first of all, I'm going to treat everyone the same. I'm sorry, it doesn't exist. It really doesn't exist, you know? You have to treat people 
the way that you'd obviously like to be treated yourself. But really, you have to see the, the you have to go into those players' characters and, and deal with them accordingly. That's it. The point I wanted to make to you was the thing that my, my daughter, who never saw me play, but I uh, were growing up as kids when I was managing, particularly at Wickham Wonders, and this was the start. And they realised that their dad was in a great mood if he won on the Saturday, and that we could go to some, <laughs> we could go to some two-bit Chinese restaurant in the main street of High Wickham and enjoy Saturday evening. So honestly, every single day, I'm talking about, I'm talking about a nine-year-old kid who realised very, very quickly that dad's moods were so important that the match became everything. And she, when I was to, to leave the house, getting into the car to drive away on the Saturday morning to meet up with the team, she raced out every single time, Sam, and said, Dad, just win. Just win. <laughs> oh, so nice. so if, if, if I have any advice, <laughs> if I have any advice to up-and-coming managers, up-and-coming coaches, just win. <laughs> I love that. Listen, soccer's been a great game it's, and it's been very, very good to me and I, I could never, ever knock it. It's something that I wanted to do from a, a very early age and management really became secondary, as I said, really. But it was, do you know what it was, Sam? It was as much to stay in the game as anything else, you know? And I found out for all the advice I used to give everyone, what are you going to do about your life after football? I found out I wasn't even taking that advice myself. So by the time <laughs> that I, I almost fell into management as much as anything else and, and actually did enjoy it for the most part, but, uh, but defeats are still really hard to take, you know? Well, I, I gotta, I, I gotta say thank you. You've honestly been a, a fantastic guest. It's been a genuine privilege to be able to speak to you after following your career for so long as a fan. Um, you are really one of the football greats, and just thank you so much for your time and uh, been been a pleasure. Oh no, Sam, no, the honour is absolutely and utterly mine. And, and anyone to lead the Lions at the age you did is phenomenal. Man. Oh, thank you very phenomenal. much. Appreciate okay. that. Okay, so listen, no the. Privilege is mine, absolutely. And uh, just well done in your career. Really well done. Brilliant. Oh, thanks. Thanks again to Martin for his time. He's someone I grew up watching on the touchline and it was fascinating to hear his perspective on how football has changed since he first became involved in the 70s, the roles of the players, the captains and the managers. Interesting that he was a firm believer that you need the manager to be the one powerful voice in the change room. Despite, like almost every other guest I've spoken to, he said he was very shy growing up and he had to work hard on coming out of his shell to talk to big groups. I can certainly relate to that and it's funny how that introversion is the one common thread linking all these episodes together so far. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show, or if you've got any suggestions for future guests, or if you've got any captaincy questions you'd like to ask me, please do get in touch. The email is captains at crowdnetwork.co.uk, or just use the hashtag CaptainsPod on social media. Don't forget, if you want bonus episodes of Captains, you can. Subscribe to Crowd Sports Plus on Apple, and you'll get an episode of The Huddle every Thursday. Follow us on LinkedIn for extra leadership tips also, just search for Captains with Sam Walton. Okay, that's it for this episode. Next week, I'm joined by former England netball captain, Serena Guthrie. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.